Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Fancy Feast. And he said, it feels right, but it also feels like my chest is being crushed. I feel like I'm going to die. And I said, so die. That and more. But first, folks, we have been so moved by the outpouring of love and support by Risk fans lately. If you don't know, Risk is going through a financial crisis this summer. Long story short, our main income stream, advertising, got screwed up for about 10 months by the prior network we were at. And our new network should have our advertising flow back up to speed sometime in the fall. And other income streams should be picking up then, too. But we're in danger of running out of money entirely before then. Everyone on staff has taken pay cuts. Everyone is working five times as hard as usual. It's Pride Day in New York, but here I am working. I have not been able to take much time away. We're working on getting new things happening, like new risk-curated social events where attendees will be guided to share stories with one another. But we need every single person who cares about risk's continuing ability to exist to donate to us, either at paypal.me slash risk show for a one-time donation or at patreon.com slash risk for a membership, including all that bonus content. So many people have been writing into say the show is essential to them and that risk has got to keep on keeping on and we'll move mountains to make that happen but we still need people to be donating more if you'd rather not do paypal or patreon you can email me at kevin at risk-show.com to figure something else out but please do give even if you can only give a little thank you so much everyone we'll be right back Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Now here's the show. Risk! 
Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is The Cars behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Touch and Go, how we learn to live with things feeling impermanent or even unstable. But listen, we had a Risk Live show in New York a few nights ago, and I am still basking in the afterglow. It felt so reassuring to have a spectacular show and a full house and to have so many people telling us how this show is an institution and irreplaceable and how it's invaluable to their own well-being. I met a young woman after the show who was crying. She was so excited to tell me how much she loves the show. So we really couldn't help but start to feel like we really are gonna make it through this summer. With your continued help, of course. And if you're anywhere within a couple of hours of New York, pitch us funny stories. We could always use more lighthearted or funny stories to pepper into our upcoming New York shows. You can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. And that young woman I was talking about, she said she lived near me in my neighborhood of Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. You know what? Anyone listening who lives in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, or fairly close to it, email me at kevin at Maybe I can make some social stuff happening soon for folks who are literally my neighbors. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from writer and director Jessica Thompson. Her latest film, The Invitation, is now on Netflix. But before that, something from James Urbaniak from The Venture Brothers on Cartoon Network and Difficult People on Hulu. James told this one at the Risk Live show in San Francisco last February, a story we call Stage Doors. Thank you. So uh, this takes place in the mid 80s when I was kind of a quintessential slacker. I had gone to a community college in New Jersey, Brookdale Community College, the largest community college in New Jersey. And uh, I was doing a lot of plays there and then I stopped going. And then I just got like a day job in an office, went to bars with my friends and did community theater, amateur theater in New Jersey, and wasn't really on a career track or anything, but I was very drawn to the theater, even though I didn't necessarily know that that's what I wanted to do at that time. I was in New Jersey, and I used to go to New York a lot and see plays. And back then, you could get standing room for Broadway plays for like $20. You would stand in the back behind the little wall in the orchestra section, and you could just stand there and watch the whole play. And then what I would do is, at intermission, sometimes people would leave, or you would see that there was a seat that had never been taken, and then I would upgrade myself. I would go down the aisle and get an orchestra seat. And I really enjoyed being in these theaters, watching actors on stage. I had a friend named Nick, and one night, Nick and I got tickets to see a production of Long Days Dirty Into Night by Eugene O'Neill, starring Jack Lemmon. I was excited to go. I'd heard of this play. I don't think I'd ever read it. But we went to see this play, and it was Jack Lemmon, and his sons were played by Kevin Spacey, before he was famous, sorry to bring him up, and, <laughs> and Peter Gallagher, before he was famous, and it was really great. It was Long Day's Journey into Night. And then it ended, and I turned to my friend Nick, and I said, I want to go backstage and meet Jack Lemmon. Now, there's no way I could get backstage at this play. I didn't know Jack Lemmon, and I thought, I have an idea. <laughs> There's a maid in the play, a maid character, it's a small part, and I said, we go to the stage door, we ask to see the actress who played the maid, and they let us in. And then we go to Jack Lemmon's dressing room. <laughs> so I go to the stage door, let's say the actress who played the maid was named Susan Jones, I said, Susan Jones, we're friends with Susan Jones, and they went, come right in. Instant access. 
And there was like a s- steps, and they went, yeah, you go up there. And my hand to God, as we're going up these steps, a woman is arguing with someone at the stage door because her name is not on the list to see Jack Lemon. This is absolutely true. And she's going, I re- I'm a friend of Jack's. And they're like, sorry, you're not on the list. And she went, would you please tell Jack that I was here? And as we're going up, someone else said, who's that? And someone said, friend of Susan's. <laughs> so we were, now we're backstage in a big Broadway theater and we don't know where to go. But it's very exciting to be there. And we're kind of wandering around. It's a very large theater. And the backstages of these theaters are very delightful places, like this. (laughs) I mean, they're cavernous, they're mysterious. And then a woman who's very well dressed is walking in the opposite direction. And my friend Nick said, kind of putting on an air of benign exasperation, he goes, where is Jack's dressing room? And she goes, oh, it's right. You go down there and make a right. And, you, and so we, we go down there and make a right. And there's a large room, sort of like as big as this sort of stage area, with very high ceilings. And it's like a foyer to another dressing room. But standing in this large room where there are classic, like, um, makeup tables and mirrors is Jack Levin, the movie star. And he's alone. <laughs> and we walk up. We stand there, and we go, hey. And Jack Lemon puts on a big, very genuine smile and says, hey, fellas, thanks for coming. And then we chat with Jack Lemon briefly, and he's super sweet. It doesn't last that long. We're like, ah, that was a great play. Ah, thank you so much for coming, yeah. And then we leave, that's it. That was that moment. And The next time I went to a Broadway show, I thought, I'm going to do this again. (laughs) I like being backstage. I'm drawn to it. I'm still living in New Jersey. I haven't moved to New York. I haven't turned pro, but I'm drawn to it. So I use the same technique. I go, (laughs) I look for someone playing, you know, uh, the maid. And then I ask for an actor who has a small part. I go to see, there's a production of The Front Page with John Lithgow. I get back there, because that's got a million characters in it. Julie Haggerty from Airplane is in that production. I shake her hand at her dressing room. She has very thin, very elegant hands. (laughs) I go to, uh, there's a revival of a Noel Coward play called Hay Fever, starring Rosemary Harris, later known as Aunt May in the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, but this is years before that. I walk into her dressing room on the same premises. This is very pre-9-11 behavior, by the way. (laughs) Like, these places should have had better security. But my intentions are innocent. (laughs) I'm not stalking these people. I don't overstay. I just like being backstage, meeting these actors in these theaters uh, through false uh, premises. Rosemary Harris is like, would you like a Perrier? (laughs) A guy is taking her wig off. It's exciting. And at that time, I was in a community theater production. I was strictly an amateur at this time of a Noel Coward play called Present Laughter. And I said to her, I'm uh, in a Noel Coward play myself in Spring Lake, New Jersey. And she said, when you do coward, you need to send the words aloft like a ping pong ball. And she said that. It's good advice. Rosemary Harris is giving me th- acting advice backstage while I'm sipping a Perrier and she's getting her wig taken off. <laughs> and uh, what else did I see? Oh, there was a production of John. Uh, these are all revivals for some reason. But there was a production of John Guare's The House of Blue Leaves that John Mahoney and Christopher Walken were in. I crashed that place. I met the very young Ben Stiller before he was. He went, are you an actor? I went, yes, I am. <laughs> I kind of was. And then I went to another Broadway show and I got a little cocky. Because I knew at this point, I knew with Broadway theaters, the wings lead to backstage. So I jumped on the stage, went into the wings. No one stopped me. If you've been to Broadway, a lot of the ushers in these theaters are older people. So they may have just been too slow. Like, stop that young now, forget. So that's what I'm doing. It's like a couple of years in the mid-80s. I'm just crashing backstage because I just like being in these theaters. One night, I'm in New York City with Nick, my perpetrator, the first time we did this to Jack Lemon. 
And we hadn't seen a play that night. We were just hanging out in Manhattan. And it was around 11 p.m. and we're in Midtown and the Broadway shows are getting out. At that time, there was a Broadway show called I'm Not Rappaport <laughs> by Herb Garner. And it starred Judd Hirsch and Cleavon Little from Blazing Saddles. And in this play, Cleavon Little and Judd Hirsch play two old men and they were not old, they were probably like my age, like in their 50s at that time, but they were playing old men like in their 80s who were like friends. And I'd read about this play, it was a hit play, I'd read reviews of it. So we're just on the street, we hadn't seen the play, and we can see the audience leaving. And I said to Nick, hey, you wanna go back and meet Judd Hirsch? <laughs> I pick up the program, there's literally a character who's like, policeman, and I got, I got this. And I go, and I go like, Joe Smith. And they're like, right this way. <laughs> Don't do this, kids, by the way. You're not supposed to be there. Now, this is a smaller theater. <laughs> I can't believe this worked so often, but it did. There's a, like a tight, narrow stairway where the dressing rooms are, and we're kind of going up, and there's one on the right, and there's an actress in there, and there's one over here, and we just keep going, and we get to the top, and there is this very small room with the door open and sitting there in front of a makeup mirror with his shirt off, using a sponge to remove his old man makeup is Judd Hirsch, the star of Taxi. And he turns and looks at us. We're standing there and he goes, where'd you guys come from, the street? <laughs> and I said, yeah, we did as a matter of fact, which sounded like a joke, but was actually true. And then he goes back to taking his makeup off. <laughs> and then we just stand there in our mid-80s jersey stonewashed jeans or whatever we were wearing and go, hey, you're really great. And then he goes, well, good night, right? <laughs> Which was the best way to say, please get the fuck out of here. And then I don't know if he literally walked out backwards, like, <laughs> but we basically slinked out <laughs> back down the long, narrow staircase. And I'm thinking, yeah, I think that's the end of this period. <laughs> I think the next time I'm backstage at one of these places, it's because I'm in the show. <laughs> and then within a couple years, I moved to Manhattan and I became an actor and did that for a long time, and then, still do that, and then in 2007, I moved to LA, so this is like over 20 years later, and my first gig in LA is an episode of Numbers, the procedural starring Judd Hirsch. Now, <laughs> I don't have a scene with Judd Hirsch, but I become friendly with the showrunner, and I tell him this story. And then I do like a week on the show and then a couple days later, the showrunner says to me, I told that story to Judd Hirsch and he remembered you. <laughs> and, he's, and he's really delighted that you've become an actor and are on the show. And I still haven't met Judd Hirsch, but he was just nominated for an Oscar for his performance in Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. And I'm also in The Fablemans. <laughs> I play young Fablemans high school principal. I'm in one scene, but I'm rooting for Judd Hirsch. That's it. <laughs> James Urbaniak, everyone! Oh my gosh, he quickly mentioned someone that brought a tiny little story to mind. When I finally moved out of my brother's apartment in Coney Island, I moved in with another college freshman at NYU, my friend Ray, who looked, he looked like he couldn't possibly be a college freshman. He looked like he probably couldn't be a high school freshman. He was just one of those people who just looks weirdly much younger than he is. But he did start seeing a guy. There was a guy that would show up at our apartment whose name was Kevin uh, This was before he was famous. And I used to ask. 
ask Ray, you know, what goes on? Because it was all behind closed doors and everything. He was like, it's really wild. He ties me up and he, he spanks me and he whispers things in my ear. And I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, I like had no familiarity with kink at that time. It went on for, I don't know, a couple of months. And then I became aware that kink was becoming successful. Uh, but the relationship ended, and I asked Ray, what happened? And he said, oh, my God, the stuff that he would whisper to me when I was tied up became so terrifying <laughs> that I had to end that. So I don't know if we can run that on the podcast, but there, <laughs> there it was. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired feet Pounding 42nd Street To be in a show <sighs> Broadway baby Learning how to sing and dance Waiting for that one big chance to be in a show. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sometimes my mum would have these moments where it seemed like her soul and her sanity had left her body. Us four kids would be fooling around, being the brats that we were, and uh, probably breaking something, and she'd suddenly turn to the four of us and just scream over and over again. Ah! Ah! And then, without saying a word, she'd get in the car and drive off. And we had no idea where she went. Uh, the four of us would stare at each other completely dumbfounded and the fear would creep in. She was the only parent we had and if she left for good, what would become of us? So we'd spend the next hour or so cleaning the house and doing our homework and we'd be in absolute silence. Um, when she returned, we promised to be on our best behaviour. She always returned without fail, about an hour or so later after taking, you know, the time she needed to contemplate how the fuck she got to this point in her life and after mentally preparing herself to mother the four of us brats again. And of course, within a few hours, though, we'd be back to our antics, running amok and completely forgetting what had just happened. I'm the youngest of four and I was raised by a migrant single mother in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. This isn't the pretty part of Sydney with the blue, blue oceans and the golden sand. This is the dregs of Sydney. I loved my childhood though. It was tough. We never had much, um, but we always had each other. Uh, but still, I don't know how my mother did it. I don't know how she woke up every day and raised the four of us and went to work and put herself back through school. I really don't. The first time I really, truly realised how hard life was for my mum was on one fateful night when I was about uh, four years old and my brother, who was six at the time, he'd suffered a severe asthma. You know, he'd had it since he was a baby and this one night he'd had an asthma attack, which was not an uncommon occurrence. I remember having to go to the hospital a lot. But as a single mum with four kids and no other parent to help her, she'd have to put all four of us in the car and schlep us all to the ER in order to get treatment for my brother. And it was about 3 a.m. in the morning and my brother's attack had finally subsided and we were released from the hospital. 
And we drove back home and all of us were groggy and sleepy and irritable. And I think the next day was a school day. And, you know, previously my mum had this staunch habit of not letting us into the house before she had gone in and done like a quick look around to ensure there wasn't a strange man laying in the dark waiting to bludgeon us all to death. But on this particular night, she was beyond exhausted, understandably. And um, I was asleep in the back seat of the car. And so she let my older brother and my older two sisters into the house and, you know, without doing her usual security check. And she just told them, you know, go upstairs and get into your pajamas. And she had just gotten me out of the car seat and was holding me. And she heard this almighty blood curdling scream coming from upstairs. Like there was nothing like it. It woke me up. And my mum turned, you know, panic stricken and she turned towards the doorway and this parade of small feet was storming down the stairs. And my middle sister was, you know, she was running and she ran into the garage and she was screaming and crying. And my mum, you know, fearing the worst, she was fearing that some lecherous pedophile was in her house and had taken her kids or something. And um, she whisper yelled at my sister. She was like, what is it? What's happened? And it took my sister a few deep sobbing breaths before she could answer. And she wailed and she choked out the words, I can't find my pyjama top. My mum was holding me in one hand and she was clenching the car keys in her other hand. And all of her fear and tension was clenched into that fist. And then when she realised that everything was okay, she released the keys and she threw them to the ground near my sister's feet. But at that very moment, my high on steroids post-asthma attack brother had crawled between my sister's two feet to get a better vantage point. You know, he wanted to get a front row seat to mum's reaction to my sister's hysterics. But at that moment, the pointy end of the car keys struck my brother right below his left eye and blood started gushing everywhere. The wound was pretty deep. Mum piled us all back in the car we had to head back to the ER where we had just been. And I remember very clearly my mother sobbing so deeply, you know, she was clutching the steering wheel and gazing tiredly ahead and was just so, so sad. And my brother sat beside her in the passenger seat, you know, he had these blood-soaked tissues held under his eye. And he patted my mother on the shoulder and he said, Mum, it's okay, I think the bleeding has stopped, you know, let's go home. But the bleeding hadn't stopped. After the second ER visit in one night and four stitches later, we finally got home. And the next day, we didn't go to school. We all just hung out together, watching TV and having time to our family. Whenever I think something is too tough to get through or it feels like my soul and sanity are about to leave my body, I just think about that moment and all the sacrifices and all the bullshit that my mum had to put up with. And I think, oh, I can do this. I can do anything. Don't you know your queen? This is Risk. This is Perfume Genius behind me now. And we just heard a story called Soul and Sanity from Jessica Thompson, edited by Hope Brush. So many Risk stories hit on that same theme that Jessica was sharing about being able to survive anything, to weather any storm. So it's important for us to hear those kinds of stories. (laughs) We're really feeling that right now. Hey, I had the most beautiful the most amazing conversation with nate runkle who you just heard on the episode called black lives six 
You can find this conversation between me and Nate on Patreon this week, and it's so inspiring because it's about how sharing his story on risk truly changed Nate's life. In the workshopping process, Nate finally unraveled lifelong mysteries. And when the story went out on the podcast and they heard it, Nate's family and friends then revealed to him more amazing things that they'd never shared with him before. Nate finally learned about the identity of his biological father and the way the father who raised him felt about it all. And then the episode came out and then my dad's sister sent me a message and she was like, I just listened to your story and I can't believe you would ever think that I could love you any less. And she was like, you're, you know, you're such a wonderful person and your, your father, uh, you know, loved you so much and, and would be so proud of you and would, you know, he, he never, never thought of you as anything other than his son. And like, I was at work when I got this and I literally had to like go outside and just like hide in the side of the building because like, it just, it, it was, it was everything I had been afraid of. Every fear I've had my entire life just lifted. So yeah, you don't want to miss that conversation about how life-changing risk can be over at patreon.com slash risk, along with hundreds more stories and conversations and check-ins. Thank you so much to all who have donated over there. We give shout-outs to all who give $25 or more per month, like Zach Ravine, Madeline Erasmus, Vishwas Pet. Cora Cretinend, Benjamin Ironside, Sylviana Amethyst, Jason Axley, Tony Moody, Ray Fat Cobra Comstock, and Gray Newland. Thank you guys so much. And to everyone else, please, please, please keep it coming. We got a long ways to go. Let's get that Patreon going like never before. Now up next, we're going to hear from Fancy Feast. This will be Fancy's second time on the show. She wrote the book Naked on Sex, Work, and Other Burlesques, available for pre-order now. And here she is at the Risk Live show in Philly in March with a story we call Connect. I learned that doing phone sex work requires many of the same skills as long-form improv storytelling. So I was like, I'm going to be amazing at this. I was living in Brooklyn with three roommates and my cat during the pandemic, and a third of my income had gone away. So the third of my income that I make from doing burlesque and performing in nightlife was just evaporated in an instant, and my laptop was 10 years old, so I needed some money. The other two-thirds of my income, the stuff that I was keeping, was from my day job as a therapist. Working as a therapist during the pandemic in New York, boy, uh, nothing to say about that. It was, I was not able to escape reality, which was the thing that I wanted to do most in the world. Uh, instead, I was really helping people cope with the here and now, helping to integrate the traumas that they were experiencing. And so I didn't get to do the like, I'm just going to rewatch all the shows that I loved in the 90s. Like There just was none of that in my life. And anything that was a surprise was unpleasant. I don't know if you remember that phase of things. It was like anything that was good was planned and predictable, and then unpredictable shit would happen, and it would be bad. So I was missing novelty. I was craving entertainment, and most of all, escapism. So when my friend was like, yeah, I started doing phone sex work, I was like, okay, me too, great. Um, and I opened a profile, and I was absolutely delighted by what I found there. So I wanted novelty, and I got it. So <laughs> whether I was playing multiple characters in an immersive law firm orgy role play, <laughs> it takes all types, or I was asked to um, pretend in a scene that I was like being picked up at a farmer's market and the guy who picked me up, like the caller, spanked my ass raw when I went home and tried to refrigerate the tomatoes. Car <laughs> 
a cardinal sin. You never do it. Or um, I had a caller, a conservative older man from Texas with whom I played out a transformation fetish, so turning him into a socialist cross-dressing witch. I was like, yes, I couldn't have made this shit up. This is fucking gold. Incredible. And I was... I was like, okay, I, I was really hoping to get involved with like a niche fetish community because I feel like that's, it's like consistent, that's where the money is, you know. And so week one, a guy like sent me uh, 50 bucks and was like, hey, would you pretend to be a robot? And I was like, would I? So <laughs> I ended up doing a lot of robot fetish work, which was fantastic because not only did I not need to be a therapist in Brooklyn during the pandemic, I didn't even need to be a person. And that was perfect. <laughs> did not want to be a person. So uh, it felt really good to give other people that special fantasy space. And I got kind of addicted to it. I got addicted to the money. The money was excellent. I was outstripping my uh, therapist wages. I was able to, like, got the laptop in a fucking second. It was not a problem. And I could just focus all of my energy into becoming the perfect shape for the other person, just contorting myself around whatever these fantasies were. And that was regardless of what the fantasies were, by the way. So whether what these callers needed from me was, you know, to be their perfect whore or uh, the spoiled little bitch or their daughter or whether they wanted me to tell them, like, my dirtiest secrets as if I have those or to, like, ask me if my parents were safe or just to tell them over and over again that I loved them until they fell asleep. And... I was like, oh, the men are not well, but there was no, t <laughs> no time to dwell on mental health because I had another caller on the line. So it was just that kind of, that fun little roulette. And uh, my next caller that day was like a little shy. And so I started with one of my lines, sort of one of my typical like, hey, thank you so much for calling. Like, tell me what's going on. Like, what, what you thinking about tonight? And he was like, hi, my name is Noah. This is so weird. Am I really just supposed to like tell you what turns me on? That feels like kind of gross. Like, is that okay? Like, I'm just gonna tell you what gets me off. And I was like, Noah, it would be weird if you were calling Old Navy customer service to do that. <laughs> but I'm a phone sex worker and that's exactly the name of the game. So like, hit me, what's going on? What turns you on? So Noah was a cuckold. And I don't know if any of you have had the pleasure of playing with a cuckold, it's so much fun. So. Cuckolding fetishes is when somebody has a fetish for being in a relationship with a dominant woman who cheats on them and fucks other guys and doesn't fuck them. Fun. It's, it's a very, it's an intellectual fetish, you know? It's something that people like to sort of twist around. It's like a very sort of, um, it's like a fetish that derives from something that is not done, like an absence of an act. I just find that very interesting. And I, clearly, I love cucks. Some of my best friends are cucks. I've dated them, you know, whatever. So I was like, this is fantastic. I'm totally in my wheelhouse. Like, we're going to have a really cute time. People want to know, does phone sex turn me on, like, as the, as the provider? And usually the answer is absolutely not. I am playing Candy Crush. I am online shopping. Uh, <laughs> truly, most often, I'm taking notes because I want to make sure that I'm meeting the customer's needs. I, you know, I spent seven years in retail. Like, you meet the customer's needs. But this time was different, and I was feeling my body react, and we'd come up with a scene together that was pretty low-key, I would say, for like the things that I'd seen, like the robots that I've been. This was, this was, a, very, this was a very sort of reality-based one. So at some point, like, he was on his knees in front of me in our fantasy together, and it was like I was there. I was feeling my body, feeling that strong, powerful way that you feel when a man is on his knees in front of you. And... I told him, I was like, you know, I want you to crawl towards me so that your nose is pressed up against my pussy so close that you can fucking smell it. And I want you to understand what other men get to fuck and they don't even have to try hard to do it and you never will. How does that make you feel? And he said, it feels right. It also feels like my chest is being crushed. I feel like I'm going to die. And I said, so die. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he came, which was great. That was a great choice. <laughs> he, was, he was a submissive. It's just, you know, it's just, it's improv with your clothes off. Um, 
And and after somebody comes, that's usually where, where calls end, right? Like somebody, they come, they hang up. Or if they're really polite, they stick around to say thank you and then good night. But he was, he was sad. He was in subspace. Um, so that's like a sort of far away, like sometimes, yeah, sad, upset, like you've had endorphins and then they drop. So he was feeling really small. So we kept in a scene. I was still in the room with him as far as he was concerned. And I was like, and now I'm going to the kitchen and I'm getting you a glass of water. And he was like, no, that's my move. I go when I get the glass of water. And I was like, okay, Noah, so we're both going to the kitchen and we're both getting each other glasses of water, which is impractical, but very nice. <laughs> and that made him laugh and we broke out of the scene and we kept talking. We started talking about Ray Bradbury short stories. He was a big sci-fi guy. And I am, I am too, I'm a big sci-fi guy. And so uh, we talked and, and chatted until he was like, oh shit, my money's about to fucking run out. And so like, you know, 45 minutes after he came, we hung up and the next morning he sent me a giant tip and was like, thank you, that was so much fun. Like, let's do that again. And we stayed in touch and kept chatting and had phone calls that were several hours long, several times a week. And I found myself logging in thinking about him, wanting him to be there, and I would be so disappointed on the days where I just had, like, just my shit guys and my fart guys and then my daddy and my choky blowjob man and whatever, and I'd be like, I was like, where is he? <laughs> and I was judging myself for that, too, because I've worked in the sex industry for many, many years, and this is, like, a thing that you do not do. I was like, look, I'm the dominant woman. I'm the professional. Why am I pining after this little sub? Why do I want him to call I'm supposed to be the one with the boundaries. I'm supposed to be the one who's like, who has that professional remove. And yet there I was thinking about him. So one day uh, at the end of our, our phone call together, it was like a Saturday and it was snowy and there was just nowhere to go. And I was like, hey, hey Noah, I have a personal question. Where do you live? He was like, Baltimore. I was like, uh-huh. He's like, where do you live? And I was like, New York. And he's like, uh-huh. And we sat there in the silence thinking about the train ride between the two of us. I was like, Noah, you know, how would you feel if we met in person? Like, I want to, I'm protective of the fantasy space. I'm protective of what we've created together. And I'm worried that if you didn't like me or I didn't like you, this whole thing would just be ruined. We wouldn't get to have this. But maybe that would be worth just meeting each other and seeing. And he sounded unsure. So as it turns out, people who get off on their own inadequacy sometimes have self-esteem issues. <laughs> Boop. And he was convinced that I was just playing him like a fiddle and that he was like every other sad sack, poor guy who falls in love with a stripper. And there was nothing I could say to convince him otherwise. What would you say? I was like, no, Noah, you're different. Like, oh, I know I say this to all the guys, but I really mean it with you. Like, there was just no way that I could say, like, whatever you're feeling is real. I'm also feeling it. I think we should figure this out together. He just, he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear it. And that was sort of twisting him up in his anxiety and in his sexual shame, and not in a fun way, like not in a way that was fun to play with. And then one day I logged into the site and I saw that he had deactivated his account and had done so without even saying goodbye to me. And I didn't want to lose a good thing. I had been single for a year. And during the pandemic, that was very single. Like, no one had even touched me outside of my cat. You know what I mean? And this was something that felt alive. So I was like, uh-uh. So I sent a message to his defunct inbox. And I was like, you know, hey, I think probably this fucked with your head. And because of the roles that we're each playing in each other's lives, it's really hard to be candid. And I'm sorry if this messed up your mental health or your self-esteem or anything like that, but I, I can't tell you, like, I'm feeling this. I really want to be in touch with you. I want to keep this going. And then I committed the cardinal sin, right? I sent my actual phone number, not the dummy number. Something that a sex worker, right, is not supposed to do. He called me the next day. And I'd spent so long in other people's fantasies that I had forgotten that I was really working on a fantasy of my own. And, like, my stomach flipped when I saw that it was his area code that was calling me. And I was already well into imagining, like telling somebody the story about how we met, you know what I mean? That it's like, oh yeah, how did you guys meet? Oh, high school, that's cute, yeah. Uh, so Noah was my phone cuck, <laughs> you know, a cuckold. Well, so he pays me to make him come and cry while I talk about fucking other men. 
you know, when the chemistry's there, it just feels right. Um, but talking to him brought that fantasy into reality very quick. He is still him. I was still me. The chemistry was still there. It was, it was fun. And we were like, let's not talk about sex. We talk about that a lot. And as we're trying to figure out each other in the real world, like, let's talk about the opposite of sex. Like, what's the least sexy thing? So we talked about podcasts. And, <laughs> and then he, like, made up... I don't know if you remember the movie Room, where it's like, it's like a, a very sad movie about a girl who gets kidnapped and lives in a single room. We came up with a sequel called Room 2, Too Much Room. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a Roomba character. Anyway, whatever. He's funny. So we were, we were making each other laugh, and we made plans to talk again because we were both going to clean our apartments the following day. So we're like, why don't we just keep each other company while we're cleaning our apartments? And I was already like... I'm going to meet his mom. <laughs> I mean, this is, I was picturing, like, because it wasn't just the sexual fantasies, and that's the dangerous thing, right? It wasn't just, like, his mouth with my spit in it. It was also brunch. If you're fantasizing about brunch, you know you're pretty far gone. <laughs> Noah didn't call on Saturday, and he didn't respond to my text when I followed up. And in fact, we didn't talk for months until I contacted him about an essay that I wrote in my forthcoming book about him, which I needed to get his approval for, for the legal department so I wouldn't get sued for libel. Really, I was very excited to have a reason to reach out again. I sent it to him. He wrote back right away. He'd read it at his desk at work, and it made him cry. He loved it, and he had no idea that my feelings had been that profound and that I truly had meant every word that I'd said. So we talked constantly that month, another flurry of phone contact, nearly falling asleep with each other on the phone. And then he blocked my number. So my fantasies <laughs> imagined that his shame, the shame that we played with sexually was staying compartmentalized, but in reality it had spilled out everywhere. And that I had become a thing that he was ashamed of. I still think about Noah. I'm with people I date, Lots of people now, and they all have a much healthier relationship to shame. Much more fun to play with when it's in a nice little box. But I do still think about him. There's something that feels really unresolved about, about what happened, and I'm kind of haunted by the ghost of what isn't, what wasn't. And so I'm reminded that most phone sex calls end abruptly, and if you don't keep the meter fed, the fantasy is going to stop. So sometimes, despite your best efforts, you are simply disconnected and then you are left to tell yourself the rest of the story. Thank you. Wanna have phone sex? It's emotional, I'm emotional. One of my favorite places to share a fantasy is on the phone. With someone I don't even know. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? I'd like to share my most intimate secrets with you. Call 1-800-HOT-LIVE. 350 per minute, adults only. Make your fantasies come true. Call right now. is Risk. This is Pomplamoose behind me now. We just heard a phone sexy interstitial by Taj Easton, as well as Fancy Feast with her phone sexy story before that. And you can find Fancy on Instagram at Fancy Feast Burlesque. Folks, we have some Hispanic Lives episodes coming soon, and we wondered if there are any Hispanic musicians in our audience who might like to do covers of the Risk theme song or send in other sorts of music for those episodes. You can email me about that at kevin at risk-show.com, 
And, of course, folks, stay tuned about these social events we'll be announcing soon. We're going to start producing these events where you buy a ticket, you show up. I'll be there hosting, curating an evening of sharing stories or story-ish stuff (laughs) with one another in pairs, in small groups, up on stage, and hanging out afterwards. It'll be low pressure, encouraging, a fun way to connect with others and go beyond small talk. Even introverts will have fun. And we hope to be bringing these far beyond New York City very soon too and finally remember i'm starting an online workshop soon as well for folks who are interested in doing daily exercises in creativity in therapeutic journaling in guided meditations or even somatic exercises like breathing or stretching it's a workshop for people who are willing to devote at least an a half hour a day, most days, to doing some self-care work the way I've been doing every morning now. I'm on this path and I'm finding it helpful for healing and growing and I want to share it with others where we can support one another in the effort. So email me at kevin at risk-show.com and ask about this workshop if you're interested. I'm calling the workshop Practice. So the list of folks who are interested is growing, so I might teach more than one, and I can put your name on that list if you just email me at kevin at show.com. We'll be right back. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina, and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music, and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie, and Wrightsville, and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. We're back. Next week, Alyssa Marcus discovers that their abusive ex is now dating someone else named Alyssa who looks just like them. (laughs) That sounds like an episode of Black Mirror, but it's next week on Risk. Meanwhile, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Call me.